<coughs> Today is uh, the 12th of December uh, 2017 and we're going to continue um, this evening with our uh, Pool of Radiance series of, of, of talks. We just chanted this Pool of Radiance and um, on and off we've been um, looking into the lives of uh, people who appear in this uh, among these uh, 108 teachers um, in this this, um, this pool of radiance is a, is a companion piece to our ancestral line and it contains um, women who whose whose information has only come to light in the past um, decade or decade or so um, and men who who are not in our, strictly in our ancestral line, but who are important to us, as well as some of the people from our ancestral line. And um, today we're going to um, look a little bit into Upalavana. Uh, she comes from the same group of, of, um, uh, of teachers as, the, the, um, as Bado, who we looked at a couple of weeks ago. It's near the end, it's the um, section headed up disciples of the Buddha I think there's 12 or 13 names and they're all um, were practicing at the time of the Buddha and we'll start just by uh, reading the story again we're working from um, hidden lamp stories from 25 centuries of awakened women edited by Florence Kaplow and Susan Moon We'll read the story and then we'll have a look in, a little bit into her, her background and then come back to the story. The nun, Upalavana, was a disciple of the Buddha. She visited the home of some noble young women and encouraged them to become nuns. They responded, we are young and beautiful and full of life. It would be hard for us to keep the precepts. Upalavana replied, If you break the precepts, you break the precepts. First, leave the household and become nuns. The women said to her, But if we break the precepts, break the precepts we will fall into hell. Why would you have us do that? Upalavana said, Go ahead and fall into hell. The women all laughed and said, why would you suggest such a thing? She replied, in a former life, I was a prostitute and entertainer. One day I dressed myself in nuns robes in front of my customers, just as a joke. And because of this in my next life, I became a nun and took the precepts. But even though I was a nun, I was arrogant and broke the precepts. And as a consequence, I fell into hell and its sufferings. Later, in this current life, I met Shakyamuni Buddha, ordained, developed great meditative powers and became an arahant. In this way, I learned that you can attain the fruit of the way even if you break a precept and fall into hell. The merit of receiving the precepts makes awakening possible, but if you never, ever receive, if you never receive the precepts and do unwholesome things, you will never attain the way. So that's our story. So just a little bit about um, Upalavana. 
And again, uh, verses attributed to her appear in the Terigata, which is the earliest known collection of, of women's religious poetry in the world, um, written down around the first century of our common era, but passed on orally for six centuries before that. Um, Upalavana was um, one of the two chief female disciples of the Buddha. So along with Kema, she um, led the, the Sangha. It was founded by the Buddha's aunt and, and stepmother, uh, Mahaprajapati. But these two, Upalavana and Kema, were the, were the foremost of the Buddha's disciples and they led, they led the, the women's Sangha. Um, Ipolavana uh, said to be the daughter of a wealthy merchant and somebody of great beauty and um, so much now her name means one with the hue of a blue lotus so her, her conflection, conflection was supposed to be like that of a blue lotus and um, she was so beautiful that her, her father was um, uh, assailed by many, many uh, suitors wanting to marry her. Now I'm turning to the first Buddhist, Buddhist woman. This is a um, translations and commentary, commentary of the Terigata. Um, and there's a little bit of detail here about, about how she ordained. She was born in Savati and, and her her father was a wealthy merchant and because of, of um, all these suitors he became concerned that um, there would be conflict over her, her, her uh, over who would marry her and that he didn't want to offend anyone so he suggested to Upalavana that maybe she would like to become a renunciant Dear one, he asked, are you able to leave the world? Uh, um, most, probably for most, this would be a um, hor hor horrendous idea, but um, it's said that Upalavana, um, it was like, um, it says it was like uh, as if oil a hundred times refined had anointed her head. So it was, the, it's the, it was what she really wanted to hear. Um, but among the many men who desired Upalavana was a cousin of hers, a young man named Ananda. And this is not the same Ananda who was the cousin of the Buddhas. This is another, another Ananda. And um, sometime during the first years following Upalavana's ordination, Ananda um, found out where she was staying in the forest and and sneaked into her hut while she was out and hid under her bed and when she returned and lay down on her bed he, he jumped out and raped her and um, it's said that his his punishment was was to fall into the, the deepest hell the Avicii hell eventually but it also had a very a strong effect on the, uh, the, the, the Sangha of nuns in that um, after this incident, a rule was made that um, 
the, the nuns were not allowed to go and live alone in the, in the forest. It was deemed to be too unsafe. And they always had to um, stay in groups. So it was a pretty heavy penalty, um, considering the, the value that was put on, on solitary forest practice. Um, it was, a, it was a, a, pr a heavy price that the whole uh, Sangha had, had to and has to pay for this act. Um, it, it, the record doesn't say anything about the effect it had on Upalavana at the time, but you, we will see in one of her verses that it, it, um, it was something that she, um, whatever the effect originally at the time, she, she certainly overcame, overcame what happened, as we'll see shortly. After this, Upalavana did um, take up residence within the community and her enlightenment, the story of her enlightenment is given that one day um, it was her turn to perform certain ceremonies in the in the um, in the hall where the, where the nuns gathered and she swept the room, lit a lamp and then sat down and um, used the lamp's flame as the object of her meditation. And this is still um, done, there's a there's this Thai uh, sect where, where this is a primary um, meditation and so she, she um, concentrated on the, 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 the candlelight and um, achieved, it says, achieved deep concentration and attained enlightenment. Eventually she acquired a number of supernatural powers including the ability to adopt another form. This is called Viku Kubana. And uh, these were the classic um, uh, psychic powers, supernatural powers, um, the Abhijna and they consisted of um, of five powers, and the the, so the first one that's mentioned, the one that's mentioned here, Vikubana, is is the um, the first one, taking any form at will. And then the others are hearing to any distance, so clear audience, seeing to any any distance, clairvoyance penetrating people's thoughts, so being able to read, read minds and um, knowing their state and antecedents, in other words, knowing where they, their spiritual state and their um, uh, previous births. So these are the, the psychic powers that she's said to have developed through her meditation. In later years, um, she, she was permitted to ordain other women and originally this was a privilege that was only the Buddhas, but then he, he delegated this to his senior monks and senior nuns. Now when we get to the actual verses in the Terigata that are said are attributed to um, Upalavana, um, there appear to be actually four different verses that are just run together into one poem. And the commentary on the text breaks them up into four separate poems and um, 
that's how we will read them too. But it's, it's a little bit odd because some of them seem to be at odds with the story we've just told of how she became ordained. And one of the early researchers, Carolyn Rhys Davids, um, when she looked into these, um, she pointed out that they, they are quite, these verses are quite sort of um, diverse and, and seem to be uh, about different people. And it may very well be the case because this, this name, Upalavana, um, is, is quite a common one and it may, may well have been more than one nun by this name. Rhys Davids concludes that the great Terry of supernatural powers is as difficult to identify as our own Saint George and is not strange, it's not strange that her garter should be composite. And one of the things about these garters is that they do often contain kind of stock phrases. And you can see the same phrases in the different, in different um, women's verses. And we have to remember that it was 600 years between when the, these things happened and when um, the verses were written down. And so quite a lot of mythologizing um, would have happened in, in that long period of of um, the, the stories being passed down. But just let's just have a look. We just have a look at um, two main verses. Um, and the first one is the one that w would seem to not belong to the same person as, as the Upalavana we've been talking about. Because here, here it goes, and then I give you a bit of the backstory. She says, my mother and I found out we were wives of the same man. I was horrified, my hair stood on end, and suddenly the pleasures of the senses were vile and stinking to me. I loathed them and all my troubles they caused. I loathed them and all the troubles they caused, where mother and daughter were wives together. Then pleasure was danger and renunciation was solid ground. So at Rajagaha I left home to be homeless. So this doesn't sort of tie in with our story, our first story. But the back, the behind this, is um, a tale which the writer of this book, um, Susan Murcott, um, uh, likens to the story of Oedipus in Greek tragedy. It starts off with with um, Upalavana's mother, um, who. Uh, whose husband went away on a, lo a long trip and um, the mother found out that she was pregnant. The mother-in-law accused her of infidelity and turned her out of the house. And so she set off along the highways to search for her husband, but was still searching when she came to the time of her labor and delivered her s a son um, alone in a hut on the side of the road and an evil merchant came along stole the son from her newborn baby and um, left her. Uh, she later then, uh, this is still the mother of Upalavana, um, was taken in by a robber chief and then she had another child uh, by, this, by this robber chief but then 
she injured the child and fearing that, that her new husband would um, be angry with her, she fled and left the daughter behind. And then many years later, her son uh, independently married both the mother and her daughter. And so this is the, the story that's behind the verse. And they discover, they eventually discover that they're related. And so they find that they're married to the, the, um, the son and half-brother. And um, so it sort of involves sort of incest in it. But really what comes out of this, we could say this comes out of this story, this, this um, convoluted story, is the kind of world that women lived in at that time. A dangerous place, uh, a place of uh, uh, where you had very little protection. Um, and we were subject to all these different forces. mother-in-law who could just kick you out, um, having your, your children stolen or taken from you. So in one of the other verses here, this one relates more directly to the first story we heard about Upalavana. And this is where Upalavana is sitting in meditation and um, Mara, the force of, of um, ego and evil and death, uh, comes to visit Upalavana and says, you're just a child standing alone at the foot of the flowering tree. You don't even have a companion. Aren't you afraid of bad men? And this, this one actually appears as a, as a sutra, a Pali sutra. And in one translation of the sutra, it, this last line of Mara's is, aren't you afraid of rapists? And Upalavana replies, Mara, if, uh, if 100,000 men as bad as you came all together, I wouldn't move a hair. What can you do on your own? And, another, and again, another version here has um, 100,000 rapists. But her question is a very, a very pertinent one. What can you do on your own? Because Mara, to work his, uh, his evil, needs our complicity. He needs us to join with him in uh, deceiving ourselves. And now she's realized this, that, that Mara doesn't doesn't pose any threat to her, really. Mara then says, I'll vanish, I'll enter your belly, I'll stand between your eyebrows, and you won't be able to see me. And this is, this is the way that Mara works. He can only really work if we don't recognize him as a, as a force of, of delusion. And Upalavana replies to him, my mind is my own. I have, I have walked the roads to power and have discovered the great knowledges. The Buddha's teaching has been done. Pleasures of the senses are swords and stakes. The elements of mind and body are a chopping block for them. What you call delight is not delight for me. 
Everywhere the love of pleasure is destroyed. The great dark is torn apart and death, you too, are destroyed. And in the sutra version of this, Mara then grumbles to himself, Upalavana, the nun, knows me, and he slinks away. And these last few verses are quite, quite formulaic. They appear in other versions. But the point here is that she's, um, she's, she has no fear. She has no fear of the unpleasant, just as she has no, no attachment to the pleasant. There's two sides of one coin. So that's just um, a little bit about, about Upalavana. And we'll just go back now to our story. And this story about Upalavana and, and the, the noble women um, is a is a Mahayana story, and it is it's attributed. Uh, it appears in um, Dogen's Shobogenzo. Um, uh, in the Kesa Kudoku, so it's a long it's a long chapter about the merits of the Kesa, the Buddha's robe. And Dogen takes this story from um, the Mahaprajnaparamita Shastra, which is attributed to Nagarjuna. Um, it's a commentary on the Prajnaparamita Sutras. And um, Nagarjuna is said to be the, the writer and compiler of this commentary. And of course, he appears in us ancestral line. And, and Dogen picks out this story and retells it in his, his case uh, Kudoku. Uh, people probably, um, some of you may have heard of Nagarjuna. He um, he's um, behind a lot of the, the, the Mahayana sutras. And um, the legend is that he received these sutras that were too too advanced for people at the time of the Buddha, and they'd been entrusted to these serpent deities, and then were, were these, they were brought forth, these deities lived under the oceans, and were brought forth and uh, passed uh, to Nagu Nagarjuna, whose name has got the word for serpent in it, Naga, um, uh, around the, um, about 150 to 250 of our common era. Uh, it's an important point to, to think of these sutras coming from from these um, serpents in the depths of the seas and under the earth, um, a little bit like they were brought forth from the the unconscious or from the the wisdom of the of the earth uh, for us. But here we just get this little snippet of a story, and um, we just read it again here. The nun Upalavana was a disciple of the Buddha. She visited the home of some noble young women and encouraged them to become nuns. They responded, we are young and beautiful and full of life. It would be hard for us to keep the precepts. And of course for, the, for monks and nuns there's many, many precepts, hundreds of them. But um, we can also apply this to, to our own uh, 
precepts. We may think this, and we may be reluctant to, to take our 16 precepts that we take um, at Matariki and in, at New Year's, uh, because we may think, oh, we can't, we can't, we won't be able to keep them. But Upulavana sort of brushes off this reasoning, and she says, if you break the precepts, you break the precepts. First, leave the household and become nuns. The woman said to her, but if we break the precepts, we will fall into hell. Why would you have us do that? And Upalavana said, go ahead and fall into hell. The women all laughed and said, why would you suggest such a thing? And then she tells a story about being, um, in a former life, being a prostitute and an entertainer. One day I dressed myself in nun's robes in front of my customers, just as a joke. And because of this, in my next life, I became a nun and took the precepts. But even though I was a nun, I was, an arrogant, I was arrogant and broke the precepts. And as a consequence, I fell into hell and its sufferings. And um, in the original story, this is in the time of the Buddha Kashapa, so a very, 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 very long time ago. And then in a, in a subsequent life, she meets Shakyamuni Buddha. So in another eon, and when she meets Shakyamuni Buddha, she ordains and then develops these great powers, these meditative powers, and becomes an arahant. And then she says, in this way, I learned that you can attain the fruit of the way even if you break a precept and fall into hell. The merit of receiving the precepts makes awakening possible, but if you never receive the precepts and do unwholesome things, you will never attain the way. So it's a, it's a subtle point that she's making here. I hope we can, hope we can un unfold it. Um, that we each of these these stories has a commentary, and this one's by um, Tubton Chodron, um, and she is an American Tibetan Buddhist nun and student of the Dalai Lama and founder and abbess of Shravasti Abbey, a monastic community for Westerners um, near Newport, Washington, and she's the author of Buddhism for Beginners and other books. And she says here that um, this exchange that, that um, Upalavana has with the young noblewoman um, reminds her of conversations that she has had with women who are doubtful about becoming monastics and, and say things like, I can't possibly keep the precepts, it's too hard. She says, their negative self-image stops them from following the path to awakening. While it may sound strange for Upalavana to nonchalantly say, if you break the precepts, you break the precepts, as if it were no big deal, she is in fact encouraging these women to go beyond their perfectionist tendencies and self-deprecation and give it a try. Stop getting in your own way by telling yourself you're incapable of doing something that you admire. Have some confidence that you can realize your beautiful Buddha potential. 
So this is really um, a teaching about about um, getting beyond our ideas about ourselves, and especially especially about getting beyond our our perfectionist tendencies, our tendency to to be scared of 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 um, making a mistake. And uh, it's quite a useful storytelling uh, uh, device to be able to see your former lives because it gives you kind of a long view on things. She can see that she could um, go through these very different states of being ordained, being a prostitute, falling into hell, um, and, and come through the other side and not be defined by any of it. We can just look at this, um, at, at the karma of this. So you can imagine, she was, she was, um, she was living as a prostitute, and then she puts on monks' robes or, or nuns' robes, and. Um, entertains her customers. She's in front of her customers. And we can imagine that this could have been, um, that what she did in those robes might have been pretty blasphemous, sacrilegious. Uh, obviously, um, fairly uh, disrespectful um, to uh, parade yourself in nuns' robes and possibly um, titillate your audience in different ways, make them laugh. But rather than being uh, the story, rather than being critical of this, this uh, disrespectful behavior, we're told that it has merit. Uh, this, is, this is brought out in Dogen's commentary. He says, the primary cause of this bhikshuni upalavana attaining the truth as an arhat is just the merit of her putting on the kashaya on her body for a joke. Because of this merit and no other merit, she has now attained the truth. Amazing statement. You can get into the psychology of it. If you think of this, that, that for some reason, she was drawn to the robes. And even though her activity could be seen as blasphemous, it must have contained something else as well. Some, some sense of attraction or curiosity, maybe. Attraction to maybe the purity of, or the simplicity, or, or the renunciation of that, that nun's, a nun's life. And she may have been completely unconscious of this, when she, uh, she play-acted as a nun, entertaining her, her customers. And what she felt might have something been so very tenuous, very fleeting, but nevertheless there. 
And in that, we, can, we could understand that there was something, some aspiration, some, some desire for something um, more, or some, some relief from her, her present life. Sometimes merit, uh, this concept of merit, is divided in our is, is derided in our tradition in the, in the Mahayana tradition. It's seen as being um, uh, can be turned by us into spirit, kind of spiritual materialism, where we we substitute uh, acquiring spiritual uh, riches where before maybe we we went for worldly riches, but this. It's that's it, it, only the uh, misinterpretation of it. Um, the the uh, Theravada scholar uh, Tanisaru Bhikkhu, who is a translator of many of the Pali Sutras, uh, has this to say about merit: the concept of merit is widely misunderstood in the West. It's often seen as the selfish quest for your own well-being. Being. Actually, though, the actions that qualify as meritorious are the Buddha's preliminary answer to the set of questions that he says lie at the basis of wisdom. What is skillful? What is blameless? What, when I do it, will lead to long-term welfare and happiness? If you search for happiness by means of the three types of meritorious action, generosity, virtue, and the development of universal goodwill, it's hard to see how that happiness could be branded as selfish. These are the actions that, through their inherent goodness, make human society livable. And so we can imagine in, the, in um, Upalavana in her previous life, there must have been some kernel of, of uh, interest or desire or feeling that um, was a search for, for, for um, well-being, for her own well-being, for something beyond her, her present life. And that would, we could see that as being the merit that, that continued through her journey. And maybe it got expressed in a profane way, and maybe that was the dominant thing. But you can understand that there was a seed there, something genuine. She was drawn to the robes, which are, are a powerful symbol of our taking of the precepts. And if you, if you, if you think of um, how meaning is imbued in objects, where you have, um, you have uh, tens or hundreds of thousands of people regarding these robes as, as sacred, as a symbol of, of the, um, the taking of the precepts, of the vows. And she actually, she doesn't just look at them or wonder about them, she actually puts them on. So there's a physical um, component to what she's doing.
So Master Dogen um, goes on to say that um, because of this, this merit of putting on the robes, she then um, meets um, the Kashyapa Buddha and becomes a great, uh, becomes a, a, a nun. And then in, when she meets Shakyamuni Buddha, um, an eon later, then she, she develops these, these supernatural powers through her medi- the strength of her meditation practice. Truly, when she was only a wrongdoer, she died and entered hell to no avail, coming out of hell and becoming a wrongdoer again. But when she has the precepts as, a, as direct and indirect causes, although she has broken the precepts and fallen into hell, they are the direct and indirect causes of her attaining the truth at last. Now even someone who has worn the kashaya for a joke can, get, can attain the truth. So, um, again, the sense of these precepts that she took in one life, even though in the next life she fell into hell because of her transgressions, there was something there. There was this aspiration to uh, avoid doing harm that now changed the way that she experienced those, those wrongdoings, you could say. That they weren't the same having taken the precepts. So even though she fell down, there there was a sense of the something being different there. Something being valued, even if it wasn't being yet lived. And we can understand the way that we treat our own raksus, uh, which is abbreviated Buddhist robe, um, with care. We don't put things on top of them, we fold them carefully. Uh, we place them on our heads every morning when we first wear them. All these things are ways in which we are reminded to honor the precepts we've taken. To, to let these precepts soak into us and, and imbue our actions. Even when we make mistakes, this, we just won't have the same, you could say, the same uh, um, conviction when we transgress. Once we've taken those precepts, and this is why Upalavana says, if you break the precepts, you break the precepts. Don't be worried about that. Don't be worried about whether you fall into hell or not. Um, Tubton Children reminds us in her commentary that um, we take the precepts because we're not capable of keeping them perfectly. If we were, then we wouldn't need to take the precepts. And she says, if we never challenge ourselves, falling down in the process, we will not be able to transform our body, mind, and speech into those of a liberated being. Master Dogen in his commentary on this um, says how then could somebody 
so even if, if you even get merit from, from putting on the robe as a joke, then how much more so if it's done with, with sincerity uh, because of an aspiration to awaken? Then, then it's even more likely that we will, will f uh, fulfill our vows. He says, still further, if we receive and retain the robe throughout our life, humbly receiving it upon the head, the merit might be universal um, and great beyond measure. Any human being would like to establish the body-mind should receive and retain the robe and humbly receive it upon the head without delay. To have met this favorable age and not to have sown a Buddha's seed would be deplorable. Having received a human body on the southern continent, that's the, the continent of, for where human beings live, um, having met the Dharma of Shakyamuni Buddha and have, have, having been born to meet an ancestral master who was a successor to the Buddha Dharma, if we idly passed up the chance to receive the robe which has been transmitted one-to-one -one and which is directly accessible, that would be deplorable. So, so Master Dogen is just exhorting us to, to take, take the opportunity to sow seeds. To, to aspire to um, harmlessness, even, even when that is, um, when our efforts are, are weak, when, they're, when they're, they're imperfect, when they're, when they're patchy. finish up um, with a little poem by Rumi who um, seems to be um, in tune with Dogen and with Upalavana and of course Rumi lived around about the same time as, as Master Dogen. Come, come, whoever you are, wanderer, worshipper, lover of leaving, it doesn't matter. Ours is not a caravan of despair. Come even if you have broken your vow a thousand times. Come yet again. Come, come. We'll stop here and recite the four vows.